Hi everybody, and uh, we are very happy to be back. Welcome to Second Features. Welcome and to Second Features. It's our second year, yeah. isn't it? It's something like that, yeah. And thank you for, for hanging around for six months until we finally put out another episode. Um, quite a lot has happened. We're far too much to uh, to cover in, in an introduction, I'm sure. But one thing I wanted to mention, Laura, is that uh, just in the last few days, you have gone viral on Twitter. Um. Yeah, I was about to say, like, literally nothing has happened to me in the past six months, Adrian. <laughs> no, it's, uh, uh, I, I did put a thread up about working in academia in honor of the UCU strikes. Uh, mm. And it, it did go uh, as viral as things would go in, in academia. It got, like, a ridiculous amount of likes and people seem to relate to it, which is kind of depressing because it was quite a depressing uh, thread. <laughs> yeah, but, well, my, but what I liked most about all that was that you, your Twitter handle is currently that you are the last of the Brun and G. Yes, I am the last of the Brun and G. Yeah. So uh, that's that's good that you're letting more people know about that too. Yo, yo. <laughs> I have had that in my head all week since I read your thread. It's very good. I mean, it is uh, for anyone who did read that thread. Um, then you know, I'm not. I don't want to scare people off. It's just a case of saying, you know, it's okay to just have a life, guys. You know, just go mm -hmm. home, just switch off, just enjoy yeah. yourself. Don't necessarily work weekends. Uh, it's not always yeah. easy, I know. Uh, but you know, yeah. I think it it can be possible. We have to believe that it is, and we have to brag about it when we manage it to other people mm -hmm. and not feel like it's bragging. Just be like, yeah. <laughs> it's okay yeah. um so uh yeah that was that was my whole thing so that is that's the only thing that's happened to me in six months is that i, mm. I briefly went viral on twitter just before twitter implodes <laughs> yeah that's true i'm going to learn a new social media thing um so this week we've got our guest uh dr neil jackson from the university of lincoln and he's bringing in um i think i don't know if this is our first video nasty but i think it was a video nasty um, is it our first? Didn't we do? Uh, our, we did a slasher one, but maybe it wasn't a video on us. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure this one was the exterminator. And uh, when I first watched this, I got this uh, like on Blu-ray about ten years ago, and I was watching it, and then suddenly, a se this scene occurred. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler for us to talk about some of the things that happen, but it's basically a guy going around New York killing all the bad guys, right? All mm -hmm. the perverts and the crooked um, businessmen and gangsters and just anyone he doesn't like. But there is a sequence where a man gets lowered into a sausage mincer. And when I was watching that, I suddenly realized I'd seen that before. And I had this kind of flashback to about being about seven years old. Oh, God, Adrian, you didn't see hiding... put in a mincer, did you? Yeah, but I was hiding behind the sofa at my babysitter's house whilst everybody was watching this movie. I think probably just that scene because they'd got hold of the videotape. This is probably around 1983, 84. And I'm behind the sofa peeking out and I saw that guy get lowered into the sausage mincer. And it took like another 40 years before I finally knew what that was from. Did the film give you a PTSD flashback? <laughs> it was It was more like a sort of Proustian, <laughs> you know, rush to yeah, happy days at my like, babysitter's house. Not a Madeline, uh, instead a man being put in a mincer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, <what's, laughs> so what did you think of the exterminator um i thought it was really inventively violent especially the scene mm. at the beginning there's decapitation which is very memorable um mm -hmm. uh it, it was kind of you know, what i expected um in terms of how i kind of read i read about it i'd seen kind of it described uh mm. i didn't really um i don't know if i kind of will remember it in say a month uh mm. even though it was quite violent maybe it's because i don't get on with the war film necessarily or maybe it's because the main character didn't kind of grab me there wasn't anything that sufficiently grabbed me i mean those images though at the start of the film yeah um the special effects uh the sort of the mincer scene was particularly is particularly stood out. i mean certain things i will kind of look back and go oh yes uh, the exterminator yeah because he's quite a bland leading man isn't he to be fair yeah i thought he's he had not a robert touch de niro the, well, i thought he had a touch of the mark hamill about him <laughs> <laughs> but, um no he's not he's, yeah it's not really that he's not memorable it's even the kind of message of the film is not really that memorable like a mission of vengeance yeah. um 
there isn't really a particular kind of message that I got from it. Um, but I did think yeah. that some bits of it kind of visually were interesting. And, uh, you know, it's on yeah. the more expensive side um, for uh, a kind of film that is is trying to be like kind of exploitative. <laughs> yeah. But um, and as I'm sure we're going to talk about with Neil, for me, it's it's the walking around, it's seeing New York in 1980. Yeah, that that, that, is, is yeah really the visual good. sort of pleasure of seeing, I mean, New York in 1980 is like you're seeing that history Whereas, you know, yeah. now it looks totally different. And, yeah. um, and you know, New York is a setting for films which deal with, like, you know, the apocalypse for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> like in the 80s and drugs and yeah. corruption and things like that. Um, it's kind of the perfect setting. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I, I did really kind of enjoy that. Yeah. Great. Well, let's um, let's get straight in and, and, uh, and talk to Neil and see what he can tell us about it. Cool. I'd like to welcome now to this episode Dr. Neil Jackson, who is a senior lecturer and what did you say? Programmer? Program leader. Program leader, sorry, <laughs> in film at the University of Lincoln. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Neil. Yeah, thank you. Good to, see, good to see you again, Adrian. It's been a long time uh, and good to meet you for the first time. Good to well, meet you too. Yeah, well, you say, so you say it's been a long time. I think I saw you give a paper on this topic um i think it was at the canterbury conference maybe I've certainly seen you speak about this before but this project that you're doing seems to have been uh, long in the making yeah uh, it's been far too long i mean it was first mooted in i think it was 2016 uh, i was over at the um, SCMS conference in, in America, in Atlanta. And um, I was talking to Johnny, Johnny Walker, uh, Austin Fisher, who, um, who were in charge of the, the series for which this book is intended at Bloomsbury. Hmm. And um, I had a couple of ideas for books for the series. And I think uh, Ian Robert Smith was present as well. And I just said to them, which of these do you think will be the best in terms of uh, appeal? Which one do you think is the, is the one that's going to run so I outlined these, I think it was two or three ideas, and it, this one unanimously was the one which, which everybody uh, went for. So I thought, mm. okay, so there's the, the big project um, for the next year or two. Unfortunately, it stretched beyond the next year or two, and I'm now four or five years later down the line and, and still kind of struggling through the quagmire of, of the manuscript and, and still at a stage where uh, I'm desperately trying to find the time to, to write the last couple of chapters um, and, you know, just get, get this thing finished and get it behind me and, mm. and get on with all of those other much cherished uh, projects, which are also on the back burner at the moment as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if I wanted to, I could try and draw some parallel with the Vietnam War itself there that people thought would only last a couple of months, but then dragged on for years. But Absolutely. I'm, I am, I'm, not I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I am deep, still deep in the jungle and there's, there's mm. no sign of it stopping. So can you tell us a little bit about what NAM exploitation is and and I guess what your project is is trying to do? Yeah, well, well the phrase itself, you know, the, the actual etymology of the term is is, is quite uh, vague. Now, but the, the furthest back I've ever been able to trace it is uh, a review in the monthly film bulletin by the, the, the guy who actually reviewed The Exterminator in 1981, uh, uh, Martin Orti. And he used the term and it has gradually kind of uh, percolated into like fan cultures. I've not seen it used so much in academia, mm. um, 
But it's, it's something which is often bandied around in order to describe a particular type of Vietnam War film, which doesn't necessarily conform to the to, to the mainstream norm. We've all got a sense of, of what the Vietnam War film is and what that usually entails is references to things like Apocalypse Now, uh, the, the Deer Hunter, uh, Platoon, uh, Full Metal Jacket. And, and if people are being generous, they may even refer slightly back uh, slightly further back than that to somebody like the Green Berets, John Wayne's uh, woeful attempt to deal with the with the conflict back in 1968. Hmm. So this term exploitation is 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 used to kind of distinguish a, a much lower budgeted type of film from those you know, much more well resourced, much uh, better budgeted films, which um, which either preceded so called exploitation. Or, as I'm trying to make the point in this book, actually, many many of those big films actually followed in the wake of some much lower budgeted attempts to, to deal with the conflict, many of which were kind of uh, quirky and eccentric and, and not necessarily fall into line with the ways in which we would expect filmmakers to deal with a conflict that was so divisive, that was so troubling, something which essentially split the nation apart back in the late 60s and, and 70s. So many of these films, uh, you know, many of these films kind of mix up genres. Uh, I could use the example of a film like The Losers, which you know, if, if you've never seen The Losers, it's it's a film directed by Jack Starrett uh, back in 1970. And what that does is it it mixes up the conventions of of the then very popular biker movie uh, with the war film. It somehow contrives a situation whereby a gang of bikers are sent to rescue a missing CIA operative in Vietnam. The reasons for that, uh, uh, still, I've watched the film several times and the reasons for hiring bikers are still quite unclear to me. But um, you know, that's a really good example, I think, of, of an early exploitation of, of what eventually became referred to as Namsploitation. Now, as uh, the, the cycle of films developed into the 1980s, as film pe- make, uh, filmmakers became less reticent and more confident in dealing with Vietnam as a subject, the, the the actual Vietnam War film cycle itself was, to a large extent, just an extension of the traditional war film, yeah. which was uh, the adventure story, the action-adventure film. And, of course, that put a whole new, uh, new kind of uh, set of troubling conventions into play because you started to get the, the those kind of action heroics performed by the likes of Chuck Norris in the Missing in Action films. Um, and, of course, those kinds of heroic archetypes were, were precisely the kinds of things that uh, things like Apocalypse Now and, and, and perhaps a bit later things like Full Metal Jacket were trying to dismantle. So you get this interesting dichotomy within the Vietnam War film cycle, such as it is, um, mm-hmm. between those films which are obviously trying to deal with the war and its various philosophical and political ramifications, and those films which are trying to use the war as a vehicle up- upon which they can still construct these these action-adventure narratives which have been so familiar from the war film as it had developed, especially out of World War Two. Yeah. Um... I mean, so Laura, what did you make of the exterminator? Is that something that you have you dug into numb exploitation before yourself? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, beyond the sort of usual suspects, you know, they're Rambo and uh, you know, um, Apocalypse Now and all that stuff. Mm. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, I have kind of dug into the idea of the exploitation film. Um, I found it quite interesting. Really, really, uh, very, very over the top, violent. Uh, I thought it's kind of framing as a Vietnam film versus, you know, the kind of exploitation themes, well, the kind of themes that you see in the film that are drawn from the history of sort of exploit, what you'd expect from exploitation cinema. The way those two things work together was quite interesting. Um, The first sequence was really uh, just visually kind of intense, Mm. I think. Um, and that kind of that first sequence sort of frames the film, doesn't it, and positions that as a war film. But I think without that sequence, we wouldn't really get the sort of Vietnam aspect as strongly as we do. Um, I find the kind of the, the sort of ordinariness of the vigilante main character. Uh, he's just such a, a bloke you would see in the shops, isn't he? Um, and he's kind of going on this mission of vengeance. Uh, I thought his yeah his performance and that character. 
uh, was kind of interesting. It's not what you would typically expect to see. Um, mm. What I really uh, just kind of loved about it was um, the just New York in 1980, yeah. because it's just, uh, you know, we, you, we sort of, New York in 1980 is not the gentrified New York of today. It's kind of gangs and drugs and, and you know, prostitution. And you see kind of New York in all its kind of dilapidated uh, glory is the wrong word, but it's it's just like a it's almost like a, a historical document. This film, in a way, mm. and um, again, I think the like you find that in sort of I guess exploitation cinema, like the sort of cityscapes and locations can figure quite um, quite a lot in like you know like the British B film location and setting is often mm. why historians go back and watch these films because it's kind of like a time capsule. Well, that's mm. why I do anyway. Yeah. So I mean, this film kind of felt like a bit like that, a bit like a kind of 1980 New York time capsule. Mm. The um, yeah, I mean, Neil, was it all? sort of shot on location it looks like it was yeah it was very much a, a new york production um i mean the, the director james glickenhouse and the producer mark buntsman were were both native to the area and their their friendship went back i think apparently to their to their childhood years and it was very much an independent new york production as well so the money was raised uh, independently glickenhouse himself is from a fairly wealthy background as far as i understand I so they, they, they had connections in that regard. And the original budget for the film was about $850,000, according to uh, various sources. But, um, yeah, that, that sense of it being a New York production, as, as Laura's just said, is, is very much embedded into the, the, the visual style of the film and capturing a certain part of New York at, at a point in time. Now, you also referred to uh, the opening of the film. Now, that was actually shot uh, at, after principal photography had completed and they'd already started to edit the film. And, and it was decided that the film was uh, um, accomplished enough to actually pour some more money into it. And they decided to shoot this whole Vietnam prologue uh, after the fact. Oh, so right. they got the actors back in, uh, Steve James and, and Robert Gintins, to, to shoot this sequence. But they did that on the West Coast uh, in a place called um, Indian Dunes, which is a, a kind of a, a ranch land out in California. And it was um, a place where many of the TV shows had been shot um, lots of popular TV shows used it as a location. But I think most interestingly, it was also the place where the infamous Twilight uh, Zone accident occurred when Vic Morrow yeah. was killed by the falling helicopter. I thought I thought so. I thought that sounded familiar. I was just about to look that up, but you beat me to it. Yeah, and um, when the... I think it was before, before the actual Twilight Zone um, trial, uh, which, of course, uh, saw John Landis stand in trial for manslaughter... Hmm. Um, there were whispers that there had been similar uh, incidents on the set of The Exterminator. And there was, there was talk in the trade press, things like Variety, about the fact that there had been accidents uh, involving explosions and helicopters. And this prompted Glickenhaus himself, the director, to actually contact Variety to, to clarify that there were no... No uh, accidents or incidents involving helicopters and explosions. Yes, there were some minor injuries to actors in, involving fire and so on. But um, I think it's interesting that just a couple of, you know, just well, just a year or two later, that yeah. after, after all of these whispers and these concerns about these East Coast filmmakers shooting this this mass, I mean, the, the actual sequence itself cost $400,000 to shoot. I was going to say, it's an incredible sequence. It was a significant portion of the budget as, <laughs> as it finally, you know, as, right. as it finally stood, because the, the cost of the film increased as well from that initial 850,000. I think it was nearer 2 million by the time they'd finished it. Wow. So as far as this being an exploitation film is concerned, it's a very well-resourced um, and a very well-financed exploitation film, which also gives it that kind of higher-end look. Mm. Um, obviously, there are, there are much lower-budgeted um, war and action films out there which have nothing like the... Um, the resources and the talent attached. I mean, for example, again, in that opening Vietnam sequence, uh, they were able to hire Stan Winston, who, of course, went on to win Academy Awards for, for his uh, makeup and uh, animatronic work on the likes of Jurassic Park. And it was Stan Winston who designed the uh, the decapitated head, you know, one of the, probably the film's most infamous image. So it was yeah. a, and, and that, that effect alone 
apparently cost about twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> I like the um, the guy just that that massive ball of fire, that huge explosion, and the guy just like flying away from it through the air. Yeah, that's the slow motion is so that's epic. The, that's the opening shot. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Which of course was was shot from various angles, and again, it's an indication of the fact that they did have money to spend on this film, that they were able to set up multiple camera uh, perspectives in order to capture this really, really quite impressive stunt uh, mm. to open the film. And, and I've, in, in, you know, in the book, Manuscript as it stands at the moment, I make a comparison between that opening shot and the opening shot of Apocalypse Now, which of course is uh, about, well, more than a minute's worth of stillness as the doors gradually kick in on the soundtrack. And again, the image is suddenly consumed in fire. But it's this difference between the, the action movie aesthetic of a film like The Exterminator and this kind of art movie and, and uh, kind of quasi-philosophical perspective that, the, that uh, a film like Apocalypse Now tries to adopt. Would they have even seen Apocalypse Now when they were shooting this? Thing? Yeah, the, the film was in uh, release because that was released in, what, 1979? So Apocalypse yeah. Now would certainly have been in, in the minds okay. of somebody like Glickenhaus when he made this film. And I think you can see that the emphasis upon, you know, the emphasis upon the, the helicopter, for example, that those nocturnal images punctuated by fire, punctuated by uh, strange lighting effects, I think that's very much influenced by that sequence in Apocalypse Now at the, the Dolan Bridge, which becomes this kind of phantasmagorical, psychedelic spectacle. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a pretty amazing sequence. I was going to ask um, the kind of you know once he obviously gets out of Vietnam and he's back in New York and the, the sort of man on a mission of vengeance is that a common? Have you found? I don't know how many films you've written about for the book, and maybe you can give us a figure. But is it a common sort of thread, a common plot to have a a guy on a mission, sort of Rambo style? Although I know Rambo came after this, but just that sort of. Yeah, that yeah. Idea. I mean, the, and that def, uh, the, that mission is defined in different ways uh, mm. within different films. I mean, one of the very earliest uh, examples was the uh, the film which I've, I've written about previously, a film called Forced Entry, in which this, it, which was a hardcore pornographic film, um, very yeah. very cheaply made, in which a veteran returns again to New York uh, and embarks upon this this rape and murder spree. Uh, now the film is as as a hardcore pornographic film. It's it's structured and founded very much upon its sequences of, of sexual violence, and uh, you just have to listen to that brief description to know that it's a film that probably isn't for everybody. Um, some, some some people might yeah. say it's not a film for anybody, but well, um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, th that is one example of you know what what you call a, a, a man on on a mission, as it were. In, in just it happens to be in his case to be a, a mission to. Uh, to exercise his own his own disturbance um, and, and his proclivities of, upon various women as that film progresses. Now, alternatively, you can see how in some of the black exploitation examples, um, how various key characters, for example, uh, Jim Brown in Slaughter, he's a Vietnam veteran, but his mission becomes something whereby he's taken on a certain manifestation of, of, of white criminality. Uh, in other words, you know. Uh, the syndicate or the mafia or whatever you want to. So his mission becomes something to reassert himself back in America through taking on, you know, what was commonly referred to then as the, the man. Um, now, other films which emerged in the wake of those types of things, things like uh, Taxi Driver, of course, uh, which uh, features uh, a Vietnam veteran. Although, quite interestingly, I've just been reading Quentin Tarantino's book, um, Cinema Speculation. And he raises a, an interesting point whereby, as an unreliable narrator, Travis Bickle in, tra uh, in Taxi Driver may well be um, lying about his Vietnam veteran status. He never states explicitly that I was in Vietnam. Just, mm. uh, so there's this idea of the unreliable narrator uh, in that. And of course, we, we know that his mission is also to kind of, you know, inverted commas, clean up the streets. But then a, a film emerged uh, just a year after Taxi Driver um, in 1977, Rolling Thunder, which again was also written by Paul Schrader, just as Taxi Driver had been. And in that film, we see a veteran played by William Devane, who has been in captivity 
for many years and, and, and is released and returns home. Um, and of course, he's very, very much changed by his experiences in Vietnam. Uh, and during his during the early weeks of his uh, return back to the US, he um, his, his family is murdered. Uh, he is left for dead. And the rest of the film becomes his vengeance mission until it all ends in the inevitable uh, inevitable bloodbath. Yeah, yeah. So this idea of the the Vietnam veteran on a mission, um, whatever form that might take. Another great example is the film Black Sunday from 1976, in which uh, Bruce Dern plays a Vietnam veteran who is a terrorist. So he becomes a terrorist and who who. Uh, you know, who enacts his rage upon America itself and, and what he you know, what he feels to be his own um, betrayal by the country. Is that by, the one? Is that the one with the airships? That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good. Yeah. Time. So th- th- there is this kind of great cliche, I suppose, about the veteran, as certainly as pot- uh, portrayed on screen, as somebody who is uh, not only understandably deeply disturbed, but also a, a great danger to those around him. Um, and so that extends right across different types of narrative. There's even uh, yeah, it's got like dark comedies about it. There's an interesting film featuring Henry Winkler, you know, the Fonz himself called Heroes. I think that came out about 1978, in, in which he plays a veteran who, whose who's own um, obvious mental disturbance is manifested in these these kind of darkly comedic um, moments throughout the film. So, I mean, exploitation as a word that is sort of tacked on to whatever nam exploitation, black exploitation. The word exploitation is kind of almost it seems like a way of um, making a film seem on the sort of peripherals of of cinema, mainstream cinema. Um, but I mean, there can be that can be quite useful. Uh, in many cases. So do you think that with like exploitation, there are themes in this sort of cycle that Hollywood cinema doesn't deal with? Like, can, do these films deal with um, issues that you wouldn't necessarily find in mainstream cinema? Do they have the freedom to do that? Well, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Laura, um, I don't like to make the distinction, to be honest. Uh, I don't like putting those kinds of labels on things. I, I use them because they're a convenient point or term of reference. Certainly the types of representations, you know, when, when you add the exploitation at the end, the, certainly the, the types of visual representation uh, can be much more extreme, that can be much more explicit. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I think that the thematic aspects of the films are very, very similar. You just have to look at the thematic similarities between a film such as The Exterminator and a film such as Taxi Driver. Now, if you've been not very generous, you could say, well, that's not so much a thematic resonance or thematic similarity as it is just one film, The Exterminator, ripping off another. And of course, exploitation cinema is often seen to be ripping off that which has been popular in the mainstream. But again, as, as the point I try to make and the point I've, I've tried to make in other things that I've written in the past is is that very often so-called exploitation cinema is, is, is preempting and um, actually not necessarily influencing, but certainly uh, prefiguring the things which would gradually um, percolate or be absorbed into uh, the mainstream of, of Hollywood filmmaking. Yes, yeah, so, yes... It, it can be useful to make those distinctions, particularly when you're talking about um, the, the economics of film, the, the, the culture of film, uh, certain presumptions about where certain films belong. Yeah, if, 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 if we're categorising things, well, this film belongs over here in this, uh, in this economic box. Certain films belong over here because they cost a lot more to make and therefore we can assume that the people who made these films have something much more interesting to say. I, I don't necessarily adopt that point of view. I've, I've seen many of these low-budget films now and some of them you can see a, a real level of ambition. I mean, just going back to The Losers again from 1970s, it's a very cynical film. It's made in the wake of things like The Dirty Dozen and The Wild Bunch. So it's, it's very cynical about American involvement in, uh, in in Vietnam, despite the fact it's got all of these exploitation trappings. And you could say its outlook uh, is, 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 is much more um, radical 
than much of those Hollywood films which followed in its wake, which, of course, are having to tread that fine line between um, satisfying the paymasters, the test masters in Hollywood, and actually, at the same time, saying something interesting and progressive about the war as well, perhaps. I was interested as well in the... Because I guess one would assume initially, and it's particularly obviously with The Exterminator, that many of these films are American. But from what I gather and what I've I've read... Um, of your work so far, it was a kind of globe. The numbersportation was a global thing, right? I mean, so, what are some of the examples that you found? Or some of the more interesting examples from around the world of this that fit into your category? Yeah, well, certainly, I think one of the most uh, interesting examples is the uh, Antonio Margarita film, the, the Last Hunter. I know you're very interested in that particular filmmaker, Adrian, yourself, mm-hmm. and of course, he used one of his uh, pseudonyms for that film, Anthony M. Dawson. And and The Last Hunter is a film which, again, draws upon several uh, what you would call Vietnam cinema hits up to that time. Principally, of course, uh, The Deer Hunter. The the title is is, is very similar, for example. But also uh, Apocalypse Now. So it it kind of draws certain narrative elements from both of those films, but also kind of pace on other interesting things as well. I mean, there's, there's one, without giving away the ending of the film, which is one of the best twist endings I've seen in any, any kind of film. Uh, I don't want to give too much away about it if you've never seen it, but um, one of those characters um, is, is obviously being designed in the film to, to refer to, a, a let's just say, a very famous vocal opponent of the, the Vietnam War uh, who emerged out of Hollywood at the time in the early 1970s. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, The Last Hunter, if, if you're interested in Italian exploitation cinema in general, that, that is certainly a good example to have a look at. It features David Warbeck in the lead role. Uh, in the lead role, of course, uh, he had a long and uh, interesting career in uh, European exploitation cinema in general. Another interesting one to have a look at um, is the Lindsay Shontef film from the early 1980s. I think it was 81 or 82 it came out. Um and that was called um, How Sleep the Brave. Uh, unfortunately, it's been treated to various other title changes over the years, as inevitably happens. But How Sleep the Brave was uh, the original title. And that is a, a British uh, Vietnam War film that was actually shot in the home counties. So mm. if, if you look in the backgrounds, various shots in that film, you can just see British foliage, British landscape, and all of these uh, various assembled uh, British actors um, putting on American accents. Uh, and it's a film which, again, is drawing upon several of the conventions of the form as they had developed up to that time, so, uh, particularly things like, uh, I would say, Go Tell the Spartans, uh, The Boys in Company C, and elements of Apocalypse Now and, and The Deer Hunter as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there's, there are British examples, there are Italian examples. There are several came out of the Philippines, Um one of which was more or less a reworking of The Losers, which was uh, titled Nam's Angels. So um, you know, the, the, the cycle itself, as, as it, developed, uh, as it develops uh, globally, is no different to any other element of exploitation cinema in the sense that trends were identified, certain successes were identified, and filmmakers were c- quite keen, I suppose in some cases, to jump on certain bandwagons and to produce examples which, yes, they may be derivative in some ways, but they are also bringing something which is uh, kind of fresh and interesting and quirky at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the tradition of, I guess, exploitation cinema history, I mean, in this film, does the is the sort of presence of Vietnam or the, you know, the framing of the Vietnam War, is it a way of sort of, you know, legitimizing that gratuity of violence with a sort of like a social theme saying you know this is important uh is it um like i mean the film i think could probably stand as a film without being framed as a vietnam film in a sense i mean that's what i got from watching it um so how far does that figure into it i mean is it just is it a revenge story or does it say anything about vietnam yeah, well, uh, I think there's a certain point of cynicism uh, as far as the filmmakers were concerned in that regard, because um, th- they were both very much businessmen. 
neither of these uh, individuals, either the director, James Glickenhouse, or the producer, Mark Buntsman, neither of them went to film school. Uh, I don't think any of them were particularly interested in film as, as an art form. They're very much interested in as as a business. And there's, uh, I think it's on a DVD commentary for the film that um, Buntsman himself suggests that when Glickenhaus was putting together the script for this film, he basically had six or seven actions or murder set pieces, for lack of a better term, and that the rest of the narrative was was kind of constructed around those those set pieces. So, yeah, yes, Vietnam is positioned there. It was always written into the script that these two guys were in Vietnam, but Vietnam is positioned there as a kind of just a, you know, a justification for the various excesses that the film indulges in over its you know, over its hundred minute uh, running time. Now we, we, we could you know we, we, we could say that yes, this is very cynical on the part of these particular individuals. but at the same time, I think it's certainly not doing much different to a film like Rolling Thunder in which revenge itself is is very much, you know, again, it's, it's very much seen to be an extension of the um, experiences of the central character in, in Vietnam. You know, so that, that idea of Vietnam as prologue is, is so pervasive uh, across mm. so many of these films. And certainly, yeah, I, I do think it is, it is utilised, um, again, to the point of cliché, as this kind of justification, or at least this contextualization for the violence which uh, ensues uh, over the over the various films. I just watched uh, a couple of weeks ago Cannibal Apocalypse, which um, which I think came out the same year as this one, and that also has a, a Vietnam set prologue, which then you know, sort of sets up the uh, the idea of contracting cannibalism whilst in Vietnam, and then bringing it back to America, and it's spreading like a a disease but that's um and that again that's margariti who did as you said did the last hunter but i'm i'm assuming cannibal apocalypse is also one that you've covered you must have yeah, covered loads it's, <laughs> yeah it's it's I'm not looking at it in as much detail as the last hunter and but again mm. you know, as you just uh, hinted there is it is a film which um which fuses generic trends of the time very very yeah, cannily i think um and mm. that idea of bringing back the the experiences of Vietnam as as a form of contagion, which which then of course begins to infiltrate this community in in which the film is set. It's it's not just another Italian cannibal cannibal film, and it's no. not just a uh, it's not just a, a veteran returning home film. It's it's something which, uh, very, very, in a, in a really really interesting way, fuses. Uh, fuses elements of those different, um, you know, of those different forms, to mm. you know, to, to come up with something which is again really quite quite interesting as as far as the, you know, as as, as far as the um, the identity of that particular um, of that particular subgenre of the Italian film industry at the time is concerned. Well, when we think of cannibal films, we tend you know we tend to think of those films which are set out in the in, in, in the uh, tropical rainforests in, in which tribes are encountered by uh, white people and various kinds of atrocities uh, take place, things like Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox and, and, and so on and so on. This is a film which is, apart from that prologue sequence, is very much set on American soil. Uh, yeah. Of course, lots of people have been set and uh, actually shot in Italian studio interiors, but there are those exterior location shots in, in America which give it a, a a unique ambience as far as that particular cycle of films is concerned. And I think the um, the original Italian title, uh, Apocalypse Domani, or you know, Apocalypse Tomorrow, really kind of flags up the Vietnam connection much better than calling it Cannibal Apocalypse, because it's obviously you know, it's, it's obviously a riff. Instead of Apocalypse Now, we've got Apocalypse Tomorrow, which yeah. I think works it's, really it's just well. like the, no, but, it's just like the last hunter uh, references the deer hunter. Yeah. The, 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 the original Italian title for that references uh, Apocalypse Now quite explicitly. Oh, so they, they were quite shameless in the ways in which they mm. were signalling uh, their points of reference in that regard. So how many films do you think you've covered in this book? I mean, presumably there are too many for one uh, book. Yeah, as always, there are too many. And I've, I've had to really um, pull back on... Um, and some of the things I would I would like to cover, 
I mean, in the early section, the early some of the early critical analyses, um, I'm covering a film called To the Shores of Hell, which was made in 1966, which was a very early example of a, a Vietnam War film coming out of America. Not necessarily the first. The first one that you would really uh, say was, was dealing with Vietnam as we understand it now where it was a film called A Yank in Vietnam from 1964, which was actually shot in South Vietnam, right on the you know, right on the cusp of the, the actual um, armed troops, uh, combat troops arriving, American combat troops arriving in America just a, just a few months later. And that's a film that seems to be lost today, A Yank in Vietnam. Um, and it features a, um, uh, an actor called Marshall Thompson, who also directed it. And he's probably what you would call the the true precursor of the, you know, of, of what would eventually become the Rambo figure. Marshall Thompson appears in both A Yank in Vietnam and To the Shores of Hell. He plays the, the lead role, and both of those films are, are kind of low budget templates for the the types of attitudes that would be adopted on a much larger scale by John Wayne in the Green Berets because they are very gung-ho they are very right wing in in terms of their explicit attitudes uh, again they're trying to paste the conventions of the traditional war story onto this vietnam scenario so yeah there's those two early examples which have uh, well i've covered to the shores in hell because i managed to source a version of that but as i said a yank in vietnam looks like it it's lost i've, I've tried various avenues and, and just not i've just drawn a blank everywhere nobody seems to know uh, any existence of this film anywhere um, yeah, the aforementioned The Losers, I've covered in detail. Also a film I've not mentioned so far, uh, a film called Captain Milkshake from 1970, which was, uh, again, another attempt to try and capitalise upon the success of Easy Rider uh, and the, the new influx of youth-centred films that were coming out at the time. And that particular film deals with a young veteran who is coming back on uh, temporary leave uh, to America to attend a funeral. And while he's back in, in America, he comes into contact with this new countercultural sensibility. Um, and he's suddenly torn between committing himself to the counterculture and, of course, returning back to his comrades back in, in, in Vietnam. So that's, that's an interesting little uh, snapshot as well um, from the period. It's a film which has a what you would call you know, kind of soft liberal sentiments as, as far as um, as far as the war is concerned. And another film which I've covered in detail, which is something which is probably the least seen film um, of these uh, low-budget examples, a film called A Torn Page of Glory. Now, if you look on the IMDb, it has a listed uh, release date of 1968. Now, this doesn't seem to be the case at all uh, again I, I've, I've talked to various contexts and none, uh, none of us can quite put a date on this film my suspicion is that it was actually made after the deer hunter now and it's got aldo ray in the lead role oh, or yeah. at least he's the best known actor in it and he certainly does seem to be significantly older than he is in the green berets he also appears in the green berets so it's a film made by a director called bobby davis who Again, he's a kind of mysterious figure who made various softcore sex films. Uh, I've even heard uh, suggestions that he made hardcore sex films as well. But certainly, again, his IMDb uh, biography and his certainly his filmography is, is is incomplete as far as his actual total output is concerned. Yeah, so it's a bit of a and it's a film which was barely released anywhere. And strangely enough, the UK was one of the only places in the world in which it was released uh, on video. In, oh, right. the, uh, in the early um, 1980s. Now, beyond those four films, I've also tried to cover in detail, uh, as, as you've seen, The Exterminator. Um, I'm also going to be talking at length about a film called Combat Shock, which you may have seen. and uh, uh, Which is the name of your book, right? The, the book is going to be called Combat Shocks, plural. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I can... Yeah. And... Those are two films which I think mark well, well certainly the exterminator marks a, a transitional point for the whole subgenre. I think mm. it it signals very explicitly where those action centered Vietnam films were going to uh, you know, the, the direction they were going to pursue throughout the 1980s. So that whole opening section of the exterminator 
it's it's a seven minute sequence but i think it is so indicative of what was to follow in terms of those missing in action films and certainly the, the rambo films as well of course um, mm. which certainly the second and third rambo films which were very much uh, action centered and the second film is actually set in vietnam itself of course yeah. in, in the rambo series um yeah so the exterminator combat shocks but then as the films become less interesting as critical objects, or at least as far as I'm concerned, I'm concentrating my attentions more thoroughly in the latter section of the book um, upon the the actual uh, the, the ways in which the films were marketed and presented as products in, in the form of um, publicity materials, video yeah. sleeve designs, posters, and so on and so on. Because again, that's where you can see very explicitly the ways in which filmmakers, particularly low-budget filmmakers, had got over that er uh, original reticence about about um, uh, using Vietnam as a subject matter and just resorting to those conventions of action heroics as we often see them presented in publicity materials. So there's plenty yeah. of images, you know, what you would call hyper-masculine images of... of uh, of, of militarist power. Just think of those hmm. poster designs for things like Missing in Action, in which you've got um, Chuck Norris with his huge rifle and um, yeah. various other star performers. There's, there's a film called POW, The, the Escape, featuring uh, David Carradine, for example. So they're all adopting these poses in these, uh, in these publicity images, which are very obviously... Um, which very obviously pertain to the conventions of, of the action hero. Yeah. That's something you didn't necessarily see in the publicity materials for things like uh, Apocalypse Now and, and, and The Deer Hunter and, and so on and so on. Yeah, so um, I'm also going to uh, devote some attention to The Last Hunter as well. I think that is, that is such a, an interesting film that, that um, mm. it, it would be a shame to, to neglect that. But yeah, it, it's... It, just just been a new blu-ray of that's just been announced actually i believe so it's that's right yeah in, in for the uk as well yeah so we've uh, we've had people on the podcast before to plug books that they've got out whereas you're here to plug something that you're still writing i suppose so can you tell us like roughly when people might get to read this well the, the <laughs> aim for this book is to <laughs> i've already uh, kind of put it back two years already but I'm aiming to have it hopefully finished by next September. So we are still okay. talking probably a, a couple of years. Before, so before. in the meantime, can people read, like where can people read anything that you've written in this well, area? I know you've, you've written something about um, forced entry. Where can they find that? Uh, the forced entry piece is, is available on, in the Porn Studies uh, journal. Uh, which of course has restricted access. It's, it's quite if you're outside of academia and, and your institution doesn't subscribe to it, it's quite hard to access. Uh, but in the very near future, I have a piece coming out in uh, a book about Roberta Findlay, which covers her oh, yeah. film, um, which which covers a film she made called Game of Survival, also known as Tenements, um, which kind of takes her back to her own beginnings, her own uh, early years in the Bronx, but in the form of this um, action, this kind of action gang-centred uh, narrative. It's, it's basically a siege narrative, hmm. uh, so familiar from films which followed in the wake of Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've also just finished a piece uh, for a... Um, for a a edited collection about contemporary horror, about uh, horror and censorship in the 21st century. So that's been okay. edited by Simon Bacon, who's probably one of the most prolific uh, uh, editors out there. He seems to have a, a new book or a new yeah. five new projects on the go yeah. uh, at any given time. So, yeah, so those two things I've got coming out in, in, in the near future. I've also Excellent. been uh, commissioned to write a piece, a much shorter piece, um about nine and a half weeks so there's a change of pace for right. it yeah so i'm just going to be saying a few things about that film's wow. uh, place within popular culture in general but more specifically in terms of its its place within the the mainstream uh, erotic film yeah, yeah i used to see the poster for that all the time in video shops in the 80s <laughs> so you mentioned video shops, and of course, it was uh, on video where the exterminator really, really took off. Mm. In certainly in this country, it was distributed by um, 
Intervision, who who, uh, who purchased Alpha, the, the, the distributor of the film, uh, theatrically. So it really, really did benefit the exterminator, the exterminator from video. And mm. it's, um, you know, it's life on video was such that it it was in a regular fixture in the video charts for a good you know a good year or two uh, from 82 onwards so yeah i mean we, you know we talked a lot about you know the film and how it functions as as a film but it was uh, on video where it really really did become a massive hit yeah. and it was it was a significant box office hit in america as well for such a low budget film right? it, it it grossed about 5000 uh, sorry 5 million dollars um and it, it's continued to be always available on the various video, home yeah. video formats. That's it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much. I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for sharing that with us today and for introducing us to the world of Nam exploitation. And, uh, and it, I'm sure Laura is grateful for the for the imagery that she now has in her head from <laughs> Exterminator. I've seen so many things, Adrian. That's true. I mean, it doesn't even make You've a difference. Seen things you wouldn't believe i've seen things you would believe because you watched them too that's true <laughs> you made me true. watch them in most cases that's true well yeah i understand that from having listened to the podcast that adrian yeah. has made you watch various things that you wouldn't necessarily have sorry to no, in the first place. i apologize publicly right <laughs> th okay thank you neil we'll uh, we'll look forward to the book and obviously once it's out we'll be uh, plugging away okay and uh, hope to see you, you in the flesh very very yes. soon then. thank you cheers Thanks. okay bye, bye. bye. That is all for now. Uh, you can follow up with us on social media at Twitter while it still exists. Um, our handle is at Second Features. Um, you can also email us uh, secondfeatures at gmail.com. Something like that. It'll be in the notes. I can never remember. Yeah. Anyway, we are really interested in suggestions, actually, like suggestions for films you want to see us cover because we have a couple of ideas, but we mm. haven't kind of got everything firmly lined up for the next uh, year or so. So we would like your suggestions. And if you've published some research that you'd like to talk about, if you'd like to talk about a particular film, then, you know, let us know. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Um, that is all from us. Uh, we will see you next month. Uh, I won't spoil the surprise by saying what film we're going to do, but also, uh, we're not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> We've got options. We got a few options. Yeah. We got a few options. All right. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks to Neil. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.